0: Hello and welcome to Something Rhymes with Purple with me, Susie Dent, and my co-host, Giles Brandreth. This is where you will find wordy, witterings, a love of language, and a few dropped names from time to time. Uh, from you, Giles, do you have any for us today?
1: I've uh-huh. Plenty, uh-huh. because I've had a most wonderful 24 hours. Last night, for example, I was at a gathering of the Trollope Society. This is uh, um, a group of people who celebrate the great Victorian novelist, Uh, Anthony Trollope. And one of the vice presidents of the society is the former Prime Minister, Sir John Major, who is very keen on the works of Anthony Trollope and was wearing, I noticed, very fine brogues, which Uh is a clue of what we're going to be talking about today. And then this morning, I encountered a a friend of mine, a wonderful actress called uh, Gugu Mbato-Raw, who is a film star, television star. I've known her since we first did a radio show together about 20 years ago. And she was wearing the most delightful sneakers. I said, they're sneakers. She said, no, I think they're trainers. I said, well, they look a bit like gym shoes. She said, gym shoes, the price these were. Anyway, uh, that all amused me because I know that we're going to talk today, aren't we, about things that you put on your feet. Why is that? Somebody came up with this idea for us, didn't they? They.
0: Did. This was Ben Huntley from York uh, who wrote in. He's a self-confessed sneakerhead and he would love to know all about the origins behind the names of the things we wear on our feet. And I should just say that I am just back uh, as of five minutes ago from the wonderful Guide Dogs Puppy Breeding Center and their program, where I just literally had—I've spent four hours in the company of the most mischievous, adorable, cuddly, flippercanorious puppies. They were just so gorgeous, but they didn't half like my shoes. So I was wearing these plastic overshoes because you have to be careful with infection control. But they—they they got through those and then onto my laces of my sneakers. So um, yeah, shoes quite relevant for me today.
1: Plastic overshoes. Mm. Are they what I used to call galoshes?
0: I don't know. These are things that if you go swimming and you are spectate, well, if you go to a swimming pool and are spectating rather than swimming, to get into the changing rooms, you have to put these blue monstrosities over <laughs> your shoes. I think these ones that I was wearing today did get recycled, so they were environmentally friendly. But yeah, they chewed all the way through those these little pesky labradors and got to my laces, which are now in tatters. But who cares? They were absolutely lovely. But what do you what do you call your, Do you actually wear gym shoes, trainers? Sannies, whatever you call them. I mean, there's so many names for them up and down the country. Gutties is another one, I think.
1: Well, I want to hear about all these names. Now, I'm a very conventional person when it comes to shoes. I've got so many pairs of shoes because they always feel comfortable in the shop. And I buy them. And then I come home and put them on again. And I find I can't put them on again. Or if I can get them on, they won't stay on. And the moment I start walking in them, they hurt. They either pinch at the front or at the side or the back. I walk down the street and my feet come out, or this. It, it, the whole thing is a nightmare. I can't yeah. do with um, shoelaces either because I seem incapable of tying shoelaces. <laughs> I understand from somebody who knows about these things that the former British Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, was like me, incapable of tying up his own shoes I do try to tie up my own shoes but they come undone almost immediately uh,
0: say you and me both maybe it's yeah I mean we have this in common for sure and my double knot is really weird as well but I learned from my grandmother who taught me sort of back to front so she was kneeling in front of me and sort of did it her way when which means I'm doing it in reverse I think that's why it's gone slightly wrong
1: I think my problem is I don't do a double knot. I do a fairly yeah. loose knot because so, I want to be able to undo them easily. And then my yeah. wife explains, we've got to do a double knot. But if you do a double knot, then when you get to take them off, uh, it takes hours to undo. <laughs> so I like slip-ons. Uh-huh. But the point is, I've got shoes of every shape and size. The only mm. ones I'm really liking at the moment are my Crocs.
0: Oh, yes, the little birdie told me that those have been on TV recently in a very well. That's.
1: Smart. I mean, I, I know nothing about Crocs. Um, But I I did an item on uh, the ITV This Morning program called This Morning, where I was talking about Crocs, and they very kindly let me take a pair away with me. And these are kind of shoes made of what feels like plastic. They're quite heavy, they're quite large. They're not necessarily very beautiful, but they're quite comfortable. Mm. So I'm a secret Croc wearer.
0: So you wear them around the house, or do you actually wear them out? I can't imagine you wearing them out.
1: I have worn them out, but then my wife says you're making yourself a laughing stock. She doesn't. I mean, honestly, but um, we're a laughing stock in the streets anyway because we've taken my wife and I to walking in single file. Um, this is not. I mean, apparently a lot of older people do this because they can't stand one another. They've been together for so long that they walk separately in single file. That is not the reason we are doing it. We are doing it because my wife now insists that I walk ahead of her. Because a couple of years ago, during lockdown, I was walking next to her and I yes, tripped up. on tripped her up. On, on a, exactly. On a bit of tree stump and fell on top of her and broke her wrist. Um, anyway, so she doesn't want me anywhere near her when we're out walking. And she says, one of the reasons is your shoes don't fit. Lift up your feet. Tie your shoelaces. So shoes are a big, big problem for me. I want us to get to grips with everything to do, please, with shoeing, and well, could we start with the word shoe?
0: The shoe is a Germanic word. So it sounds very similar in German. It's spelt differently, S C H U H. And it is a shoe in German. And that is exactly where we took it from. So nothing mysterious about the shoes at all. But as you say, there are so many different varieties of them. And quite often, our social status too has been determined by our shoes. So at some point, we should talk about the various expressions to do with shoes that do actually have some bearing on how people see you i think it'd be a good one for a bonus episode actually but shall i tell you why we have sneakers please let's start with sneakers Yep. Well, the idea seriously was originally that they were kind of soft-soled, what I call kind of wine gum shoes, that people would be very quiet and stealthy in them. So a sneaker was originally a personal animal that sneaks, but the current sense of uh, soft shoes worn for sports or casual occasions is the late 19th century. So they've been around for a while, um, still called sneakers in the US, but over here, primarily trainers. Um, And this is a question from from Ben, actually. I think he was wondering about this one.
1: So you are telling me and Ben that the idea of the sneaker as a soft-soled shoe that you could sneak up on people in has been going around since late Victorian times?
0: Well, yes, in the sense of uh, of shoes. I mean, obviously, they don't quite look as they would today.
1: Well, how intriguing. I mean, I'm just picturing people like Oscar Wilde and Mark Twain in sneakers. It's a, just an amusing idea. One can't imagine that. But the word meaning a shoe that you sneak up on people in goes back to late century. Yeah,
0: so the first entry, and I was just looking it up in the OED actually, because you had me doubting myself. So, um, yes, it's described in the OED as a soft-soled, noiseless slipper or shoe and the first reference is 1895. And there's a lovely quote from 1900 which describes someone whose job on this earth was to put on a pair of pneumatic sneakers every morning and go out and investigate other people's affairs. In other words, this was really almost like a gumshoe, as you would say in America, you know, a, a private detective who would go around and sort of stealthily sneak up on people and, and observe what they were doing.
1: So let's just exhaust the whole sneaker gym Shoe world. Jim Shoe's- which when I was at school, you wore for doing gym, gymnastics, that's what they call called gym shoes. We also called them plimsolls. I've heard of the plimsoll line. Is this something to do with with a person called plimsoll?
0: Uh, Yes. So Samuel Plimsoll was the MP for Derby in the 1800s. And it was thanks to his efforts that the Merchant Shipping Act of 1876 was introduced. And as for the plimsoll line, apparently in the 1970s, Philip Lace, who was an energetic sales representative, and he was employed by the Liverpool Rubber Company, suggested the name Plimpsols for the new canvas rubber shoes. I should just say, sorry, this was written in 1975, but he did this in 1876. And these were new rubber shoes or sand shoes that were becoming really fashionable for wearing on beaches. And their rubber band reminded him of the Plimpsol line, named after Samuel Plimsoll, as I say, which marked the limit of safety to which merchant ships could be loaded. And Plimsoll are watertight apparently as long as they're not immersed above the level of the water band
1: very good mm. there we are so that's the plimsoll which is also the gym shoe which can be the sneaker are there any other variations on that for this kind of sports shoe
0: uh so yes slang um and dialect dialectically seem to like plimsolls gym shoes um whatever you like to call them pumps i think i used to call them as well which were very different to the pumps that women wear on their feet these days. But they are often called sannies, which are sand shoes. Um, there's also gutties.
1: What are gutties? And I mean, I can see sand shoes making sannies. What do gutties come from?
0: I think gutty goes back to um, gutter percher. Um, have you heard of that? So that was the type of rubber that was imported from Malay. And it was the gum of the percha tree. And because these were gummy type shoes, gym shoes, plimsolls, trainers, etc., that is what they would call gushies in certain parts of Britain. I'm
1: suddenly thinking of something called an espadrille or espadrille, which is, is that a French word or Spanish word? They're sort of canvas shoes, aren't they, that you wear on the beach, like Sani's?
0: Yes, they go back to a Catalan word, actually. And it ultimately goes back to the Catalan esparto, which was a tough really wiry grass found in the Mediterranean. It was used to make the original espadrilles. Now, espadrilles, I associate today with those laces that wrap around your legs. I can't quite see you those, Charles. But you can get male <laughs> versions that don't have those
1: laces. I'm not going to get any of this. My feet are, you know, I mean, they're, they're another country. We don't want to go there. Nobody wants to go near my feet. Um, but I, I quite like the idea of a moccasin, which is a kind of slipper, isn't
0: it? Soft leather slipper. Often worn by men these days without socks. That's the kind of trendy, trendy thing. Like skinny trousers, skinny all the way down to the ankle, and then no no socks, and then moccasins or leather shoes. And moccasin itself goes back to an Algonquian word. Now, this was one of the words borrowed by the early settlers to the U.S., Uh, including those who set sail on the Mayflower. And if you remember, they had to find words for all the new things that they encountered. So quite often they borrowed from the Native American indigenous languages around them. And in Algonquin means simply shoe.
1: Very good. So these are the soft, comfortable shoes. Let's get into more formal territory. I mentioned seeing Sir John Major. The former British Prime Minister, of the Trollope Society. Would you do you read just as a going down a little sidetrack for a moment? Do you read the novels of Anthony Trollope? Have you read them? We
0: talked about this last time, didn't we? And I mentioned the palaces. Do you remember? Yes, I do. Uh, so we talked about these. You told me not to read those, but to um, to concentrate not on his political ones, but on his more social novels.
1: I recommend every single. I have read every piece of fiction written by Anthony Trollope because when I became a member of the Trollope Society, you paid a subscription, and it paid for a uh, reprint of all his work, and as they arrived, I read every single one. I was just saying a good way to get into him, I think, is probably the Barsitcher novels, which are more social. Uh, but I do recommend the Palliser novels, and there was a wonderful television series, and indeed, another of the vice presidents of the Trollope Society is the wonderful actress Susan Hampshire, who played Glencora Palliser in the famous TV series all those years ago, and she was at the do last night. Anyway, I love these literary societies. This was a gathering of the Trollope Society meeting up with the Thackeray Society, who are based at the Reform Club and who celebrate William Makepeace Thackeray, the author of Vanity Fair. Have you read that great work?
0: I have, but a very long time ago. And I'm thinking, I'm assuming that in Vanity Fair, there's a gentleman wear brogues
1: They might well wear brogues. Well, it depends how old the word is. Uh, Certainly, that's the kind of shoe I think Sir John Major was wearing last night. Tell me about a brogue.
0: I imagine you in brogues as well, I have to say. I
1: may have been in brogues. I I was actually wearing... uh, uh, Brogues, I think, probably have laces. I was wearing a slip-on shoe of some kind.
0: Oh, yes, of course. We're back to laces. Sorry, I forgot about that.
1: But tell, tell me about a brogue. Describe a brogue to me and tell me what the word is. And also, you can speak in a broad brogue. It's kind of accent, isn't
0: it? Yeah. No, yeah, they are actually linked because the very first meaning of a brogue was a really kind of rough kind of shoe, not particularly elegant, and uh, made of untanned hide and worn by people who lived in the wilder parts of Ireland and the Scottish Highlands. So they were incredibly robust. And then it moved on to, the, this was in the 16th century, and then by the 1900s, so a little while later, it had um, evolved into another strong shoe for shooting and golf and fishing, etc. You know, the sort of gentlemanly sports, if you like, and country excursions. And they have these kind of characteristic bands of sort of perforations in them. You know, those little holes that are quite ornamental at the top. You can get ladies brogues as well. But the idea behind the brogue that is an accent and a particularly type, particular type of sort of delivery, if you like, it was originally associated with people who would have worn those very strong, possibly quite unsophisticated shoes that were worn by the inhabitants of Ireland and the Highlands. So it was it was a kind of very thick accent, if you like, and I'm sure oh. there's some sort of social commentary that is rather unkind that yes. is you know, involved in this too.
1: Because you talk about a strong Scottish brogue, don't you? Yes. A strong Irish brogue, meaning yeah. uh, a strong accent.
0: Nowadays, I think it's unjudgmental. I'm not sure it was at the beginning. Yes,
1: I'm, I'm pleased it is. Um, let's stick with male shoes for a moment before we get on to what traditionally was worn by ladies. Um, Men would wear, well, actually, anybody can wear boots. But a boot can sometimes be quite a, you can use the word boot for just being a shoe, as well as for being a boot, which I think of as a a bigger.
0: Oh, yeah, you can have ankle boots. Yeah. Or you can have um, Chelsea boots. I mean, they're all sorts of different boots. But a boot Again, it's Germanic originally, and I think they were, in their earliest days, I think they were, you know, again, quite robust, a bit like the brogue, robust and sturdy. And sometimes they covered not just the foot, but the lower part of the leg as well. So they always extended above the ankle, if you like. Yes, we're not completely sure where it comes from, possibly medieval Latin, in which case it would have come via French, possibly a Germanic influence. But certainly they've been with us uh, with that name since the 14th century.
1: Goodness. The Mm -hmm. Wellington boot, of course, is named after, we know, it's an eponym, it's named after the first Duke of Wellington, uh, Victor at the Battle of Waterloo, who I assume made it fashionable because he wore them. Is that
0: right? Yeah, I think so. Um, I th- think that's absolutely right. Although, as we know, because we've done our episode on eponyms, uh, you know, things aren't always as direct as that. Some, sometimes people just thought, oh, I can imagine him or her wearing this. And so they extended the reference point a little bit. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were the, you know, the sort of pioneer of that particular thing.
1: Anyone who is in London and would like to see some boots actually worn by the Duke of Wellington, go to the Museum of London near the Barbican And there they have um, the Duke of Wellington's boots. i just throw that in, since I happen to know it. Is It's the boot that you put on your foot. Putting a boot up the backside is kicking somebody. Anything to do with the boot of a car, which is something that happens in Britain. But I think in America, the boot of a car is
0: something else, isn't it? It's the trunk, isn't it? Yes. So the boot of a car was originally, if you think about horse-drawn carriages, it was a kind of side compartment where servants etc. would store luggage but they would also sit astride it or atop it and they would rest their boots on it. It eventually moved from the side to the back but it certainly we think is connected to that idea of putting your boots on something. Not connected though to booting up your computer which is this always... I find surprising that goes back to the very old phrase of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. And it's the idea of getting into gear, if you like, literally, if you're pulling up your bootstraps or metaphorically by sort of grinding into action. Um, And we think that's where booting up your computer comes from.
1: How extraordinary.
0: What about loafers? Do you ever wear loafers? Uh, Well, I've got slip-ons.
1: I think that's what I like. I mean, I want loafers. I want shoes that can slip on, but when they slip on, they don't slip off. That's my problem yeah. with, with loafers. I mean, I, I just, shoes are impossible for me. And I don't like sockless shoes. I've been wearing socks with my Crocs, um, which
0: I... <laughs> <laughs> OK, yes. no, I'm afraid, no wonder that um, Michelle's had a word. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, so people wear their loafers without socks.
0: Uh, Yes, they do if they're being trendy. And, you know, they're loafing because, you know, they're easy, just as you might loaf But why are you
1: loafing around? Because a loaf is a loaf of bread. Uh, What's the connection between a loafer shoes and a loaf of bread? Is there one?
0: No, there's no connection with a loaf of bread, but there is a connection between the loafer shoes and loafing about. And that is the German Lundleufer. And a Lundleufer was, uh, it literally means... Land runner, if you like. It was a tramp. It was a sort of vagabond, if you like, who literally wandered. That's where vagabond comes from as well. So loafers were, you know, obviously smarter than most tramps would wear, most landloufers would wear, but it's the same idea of sort of shifting around and being a little bit lazy.
1: You know so much, Susie Dent. Tell me this then. The loafer is not connected with the loaf of bread, but there is something called a cobbler, which I think is a type of loaf of bread that also is the name for someone who makes shoes. Am I right there?
0: Uh, Yeah, there's a cob. I'm not sure if there's a cobbler, is there? There's a drink which is called a cobbler and there's also a dessert, which is kind of fruit in a deep dish with a cake like crust on top, that like you might have a plum cobbler. Also cobblers of your testicles, or, you know, um in I think Australian English it's the last sheep to be shorn. But I don't I'm not sure if there oh, is this word called
1: cobbler. That We we've got near our house an artisan bakery. Oh. And I went in there the other day wearing my cross and asked for a cobbler, cobbler. and I, I think they showed me the door I, I didn't I, anyway they gave me something but clearly I got it wrong oh, maybe it's a cob a there, cob is I'm a sure round, that...
0: round loaf of bread is that what you got ah
1: I think that's it. A cob is a round. Thank you very much. Why is that? Why why is a cob called a cob?
0: Uh, We don't know, but the cob has had so many different meanings. So it's had the bread meaning. It's had a male swan. It's a short-legged horse. Ear of corn, um, and all of them have this sense of being round and quite sturdy. But I don't think we absolutely know where it comes from. It might be related to. The cop that is a head, so an old term in Old English for a spider was an atta cop, a poison head, because they were believed to be poisonous spiders. So it may be the idea that they're sort of slightly head-shaped.
1: Well, look, should we take a quick break and then come back and you can tell me uh, what I've got to do to kick up my kitten heels? We're going to ladies' shoes next. (laughs)
0: Ladies' shoes. (laughs) There's a lot happening these days.
1: I'm Giles Brandreth and I have a lot of shoes that I'm going to get rid of because my idea, Susie Dent, is this. I'm going to try on all the dozens, I mean I mean dozens of shoes pairs of shoes in my house. Unless they are comfortable and I'm going to wear them, I'm going to get rid of them. I don't know if you can recycle them. I don't know if people want old. Get into a charity shop, yes. You think they might?
0: Well, I'm Even sure if they're in good shoes? condition, definitely. i I've, yeah. I've had shoes from charity shops before and, and really good. lovely ones.
1: Well, I'm useless when it comes to shop, uh, to shoes. But my wife is very good with shoes. She's got a whole range of shoes: stilettos, kitten heels, Mary Janes. Tell me about some of the ladies' shoes uh, and why, they're <laughs> why so you gorgeous.
0: call them ladies' shoes. Uh, okay, so I'm going to start with the kitten heel. Uh, I don't know if Michelle has any of these, but those are the kind of. They're not the court shoes, as we might call them, which are the sort of high-heeled. I have lots of court shoes, and I suppose the idea is not so much that you go courting in them to use the old sense of dating, but that you would um, use them on smart occasions. Um, when, you're where going you to court. Show, when you go to court, when you're you're showing court, courtesy. Well, I think it's more to oh. do with sort of manners and, you know, the old sense of court rather than the judicial court. I'm going to look that up though, because so I, did, I, I didn't. I, I meant,
1: forgive me, I meant the royal court when you were going to court to being attendant to become the, the king or queen. You wore your court kit which would include court shoes, which I picture having buckles and things.
0: Oh, OK. So, yes, the first reference actually backs up your theory, just because it's from 1885 and it's called a Queen Anne court shoe. So that does suggest a kind of, you know, shoes fit for royals. Anyway, those are court shoes, which I have. But you can also have a type of shoe that was much loved by Theresa May. If you remember Theresa May, who was a former British prime minister, she was well known for her fancy footwear, including leopard skin kitten heels. And there's an interesting theory about kitten heels, which is that they were training heels introduced to young teenage girls who would get used to these. They were the kittens as opposed to the the, the cats that wore the court shoes. Um, They were kind of trained in these before they moved on to full stilettos or court shoes so that is the idea i think it's just that they're small stilettos they measure under two inches in height and so they were just called something diminutive that's that's my theory but um, i like the idea that they were training heels as if any woman worth her salt has to wear heels which of course is not the case these days
1: No, though I have worn heels when playing different roles in different musicals, and I began with kitten heels and then found it was quite unnecessary. In fact, wearing high heels wasn't a challenge for me, and I got a. I live in a house with uh, several floors, and I would put the heels on in the morning and be running up and down the (laughs) stairs with ease. You're
0: running them. I I can run. I can skip.
1: I can dance in heels. And I would open the wow. front door to the postman when he arrived and he would <laughs> Your laugh. neck cliché. Well, not quite in my neck cliché. No, my, my jeans and my sweatshirt. And then my, first my kitten heels and then my high heels. And, and they were, the show I was doing at the time, this many years ago, was a show called Zip where we ended up with me appearing as Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. So these were emerald slippers, as it were. These were gorgeous. They click together, and they were uh, fantastic. How beautiful. Uh, Look, I'm they, showing they... you
0: a pair of very high heels on our Zoom call at the moment. Yeah. You see oh, how high oh.
1: those
0: are? So- uh, oh, oh. They're lovely, aren't they? Uh, are they? Do they belong to you? They do, but they're still in the box because I'm OK on carpets. I can walk quickly on carpets. As soon as there's a remotely slippery slippery floor, I'm just terrified. So these would give you vertigo, these shoes.
1: Would you please take a photograph of those? Because we've now got our own dedicated websites and things, haven't we? Um, on Instagram and Twitter uh, and do. things. Oh, we do. We can put pictures of your elegant heels and your shoes. And I'll put pictures up of my Crocs
0: that's OK, that sounds good. I mean, those ones that I've just showed you are almost Mary Jane shoes because they have um, a strap across them, but they're not traditional. I mean, they're, these are really, really high. Traditional Mary Jane shoes are not that high. Now, Mary Jane apparently was a character in Buster Brown, the comic strip, and she was Buster's sister. And the creator... Uh, his own daughter apparently used to used to really love these kind of shoes, and he was called Mary Jane, um, not to be confused with Mary Jane used for cannabis, because that's a riff on marijuana, spelt almost marijuana. What about winkle pickers? I ruined my oh. feet with winkle pickers when I used to wear those when I was little. They're the ones with a really pointy toes.
1: They're so called, I imagine, because you could—they're so pointed you could pick out a winkle. You could get the meat out of a, a winkle, could you? I mean, a winkle is a kind of crustacean.
0: Yeah, periwinkle snails, they are, aren't they? They're popular seaside snack, as you say, and they're eaten out of the shell with a very pointy pin, but they don't half ruin your toes.
1: When I was a child in the 1950s, winkle pickers had a big vogue worn by teddy
0: boys. Oh, oh, that sort of male version. I, yeah, I've forgotten about those. Uh,
1: but I feel that they were a kind of pick-up from something that had been in the high Victorian era, that there were people who wore very pointed shoes in that time.
0: Oh, OK. But I may
1: have got that wrong. Anyway, hmm. winkle pickers—I remember those. Did we actually talk about pumps and why they're so called?
0: Yeah, this was a shoe without a heel, worn by men as well uh, and servants of the court, and it comes to us from the French. But no one quite knows why they're called pump, because you know, obviously, it's nothing to do with the with pumping water or anything worn by firefighters or anything to do with that. So no one quite knows. They think it. Might be. I'm looking down here, yeah, it says unknown. I mean, i'm I'm trying to I'm trying to find some plausible etymology, but I can't. It is also described as I says as a man's slip on patent leather shoe. Do you have patent leather? I used to dread patent leather it brings back so many horrible memories for me because my first trips to shoe shops were to buy those patent leather party shoes that all little girls had to wear. and ugh, I absolutely hated them. Patent um,
1: leather is that very shiny leather, isn't mm, it? Yeah. There are patent leather men's shoes that you were supposed to wear with black tie when you wear a dinner suit. Um, it's, they're sort of glossy leather. Why is it called patent? Did somebody patent it once upon a time?
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, the process of making it was recognised by the patent office, or the patent office, we should say. So that's the patent office, and they gave us the patent shoes.
1: Ah, why do we say the patent office and we have patent shoes? Is there a reason for that?
0: Yeah, I think it's just so that we can distinguish, which I just <laughs> failed to do, but it does make it easier when you you know, when you describe them, just in case uh, someone might be confused as to which one you're referring to. Um, we also didn't talk about crocs themselves and why they're called crocs. You probably know this if you're looking down at yours.
1: Well, tell me, why are they called crocs? Something to do with crocodiles?
0: Crocodile skins.
1: Oh, that's the idea, is it? Yes. And and I, with mine, mine came with little widgets in them called it bits or something, where you, you poke through the holes, you add little sort of symbols of different kinds.
0: Yes. <laughs> I can't wait Uh, to see these. Um, Well, the idea is that, yes, they sort of look like the amphibious skin of the crocodile and you can wear them in land or in water. They are incredibly useful in water, it has to be said. We also haven't talked about sandals. Now, Giles, you just mentioned that you wear socks with your crocs, which makes me shudder a little bit. Please, please, please don't tell me you wear sandals. And if you do, that you don't wear socks (laughs) with them.
1: (laughs) Well, I I don't if I'm somewhere warm. If I'm, you know, on the beach at Broadstairs, I will have (laughs) naked feet. But I'm 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 very bad with my feet. I want socks, but the socks I wear are a disaster. I don't know if we can do a whole episode on. But socks. hang on, New hang on, mate. Do I'm, you
0: actually wear sandals with socks?
1: I have done in my
0: time. Oh no.
1: Yes, I okay. have done in my time. Because otherwise it's uncomfortable. Your feet get sweaty and they stick to the, um, you know, the inside of the leather gets sweaty, your feet get sweaty and you try to take them off and it's all sticky. And But the ooh, whole point nice. of sandals
0: is that they are open to the air. So the idea is that you don't wear socks. So I would say if you've got to wear socks, just don't wear sandals. I can imagine you wearing flip-flops and socks. Uh, <laughs>
1: <yeah>. <laughs> yes, and that's a real problem I found because the top of the sock, the the, the big toe is connected to the (laughs) toes in a sock. And you've got to get the ridge going where the little mark... So, Flip... flip, Now, I am right, am I not? The Flip-Flop is named after their inventor, the the famous Frenchman. uh, Philippe Fallop. Is that right? No. He was also the person whose grandfather um, named the fallopian tube. Philippe Fallop came from the same family. Have I got that right?
0: Absolutely not, no. It's just because they flap and flop, but I love the idea of the flip-flop. Um, and we have talked about the rule of ablap reduplication, remember, which explains why we don't say flop-flip. It's all
1: about sound. Speaking about sound, the shoes have gone into the world of giving us lots of funny phrases. Um, you know, I've talked about giving somebody the boot, meaning, you know, kicking them. I mean, if you give somebody the boot, you're getting rid of them, aren't you? Because it's like giving, giving them a kick up the backside with a boot, is that it? Is that what the uh, yes, is?
0: It's, yes, exactly, with your boot. But I think, you know what, I think we should dedicate a whole bonus episode to phrases because there are so many of them. But I Ooh. do just want to remind you of a fantastic story that is related to um, shoes and sandals. So sandal itself goes back to the ancient Greek sandalion. Uh, so sandals have been around for ages. And of course, we imagine ancient Greeks in swishing togas and sandals, don't we? Um, first use in the OED, though, is 1384 mentioned in the Bible. But do you remember me telling you about the word ultra-crepidarian? I do. Okay. And do you remember what it means? Shall I remind you? Um, An ultra-crepidarian is somebody who loves to hold forth on a subject they know absolutely nothing about. And the reason I love it is it goes back to a very old story about the Greek painter Apelles who loved... When he was having an exhibition of his works, he loved to kind of hide around the corner and listen to what observers of his painters were saying. Uh, You know, he was quite proud and presumably wanted to hear them gasp in awe and wonder. Only one day he heard a man criticise the sandals on the subject of this particular painting and uh, then went on to criticise the leg and the shape of the leg and the angle and things. Now, Apelles happened to know that this man was a cobbler. So he could accept the criticism of the sandals because he knew what he was talking about. But when this man started to criticise the leg... That was enough. So apparently he came out and he said, ne ultra crepidam. And he said it in Greek. This is how it's recorded in Latin. Ne ultra crepidam means not beyond the soul. In other words, don't talk about anything other than shoes, which is what you know about as a cobbler, because this is not your area of expertise. And so ultra crepidarium, meaning beyond the soul, is someone who does exactly that. They just love to spout off on subjects they really don't know anything about. Isn't that great? I love that word.
1: (laughs) It is a word and I'm afraid I am familiar with it because you've used it uh, to me on a number of occasions. And I felt it's been a little bit too near the knuckle.
0: Oh, I'm so sorry, too near the sandal. We do have some lovely letters, though, from our purple people. Oh, we're going to move on to the letters already. Look, what do you think? Let's
1: talk, we're going to talk about these phrases then on our special bonus uh, episodes. And where do people get the bonus episodes if they want them?
0: They join the Purple Plus Club and there's, wherever they get this podcast, there are details in the programme blurb underneath.
1: Yeah, great. Oh, So that'll be fun. So that the more, more of that. And have we done a whole episode on bread? I was thinking of all the names of, oh. of you know, when you talk about Cobb. I'd love to do an episode on bread and see if my local artisan a baker... Cobbler. Can come out,
0: do you know where cobblers comes from, by the way? If you no. say that's a load of cobblers, which is obviously what they thought you were speaking when you went into it's... ask for a cobbler. I may be wrong. Maybe there is a loaf called a cobbler. But anyway, cobbler's goes back to cobbler's awls, A-W-L-S. It's rhyming slang. And an awl is a shoemaking tool. And cobbler's awls was rhyming slang for balls. So you speaking Very good. bollocks, essentially.
1: Well... The reason that we're talking about shoes is because somebody got in touch with us. It was Ben Huntley from York. And one of the things that he was asking about is why we call a fan of something a something head, like sneaker head, petrol head, etc. That was his other question. So as we have now got to where people are getting in touch and asking their questions, have you got an answer to that for him?
0: Yeah, it's really used to designate a person who has the mind or head of the kind specified by the first element. So it's all about, you know, where their head is, if they're fairly obsessive about it. But um, it was actually first recorded in lots of insults as as blockhead, hardhead, hothead. Hothead, actually, you'll find in the OED is a surname. I love that there was a Richard hothead, who probably had quite a fiery temper. Thickhead. And then we get on to the kind of hobby type things such as um, petrol head and sneakerhead, which is what um, Ben calls himself.
1: If people want to get in touch with us, it's very simple. You just email us. It's purple at something dot com. And something is spelt without a
0: G. Here is correspondence from. Um, Lots of people. I think, from multiple people, if you're looking at the same one as me, which is about the word biennial.
1: Oh, how amusing. I saw the word multiple and I thought, oh, what is the person's first name, surname? Or maybe it's an <laughs> act called multiple, a group. Multiple have been in touch, you know, like the Spice Girls have communicated. Oh, speaking of the Spice Girls, I went to see, if I told you about this, ABBA, the... Oh, the um, holograms. Yeah, they're, oh, the, ar- amazing. the avatars. Can I tell you, it's amazing.
0: Yeah, we, I've heard.
1: The joy for us... Uh, Susie is our podcast need never age or die
0: no Um, should we become holograms
1: we can become I don't think they're quite holograms are they not I I thought they were okay I think they call themselves avatars it's beyond belief you actually think they are there you think you can walk around them it's not like something on a screen that it's it's phenomenal I have to tell you but that's by the by so multiple have been in touch about biennial tell us about this
0: well, it's because in our recent episode on art, I was talking about how the first exhibition I saw really was at the Venice Biennale. And we have had a lot of people say a biannual event can confusingly mean both occurring twice a year and occurring every other year. And I think we mentioned at the time that it is slightly hazy. And many of the purple people, including Robert Bacon and Mary Scanlon and Emma Scott-Smith, have been in touch to suggest a solution, which is that biannual should be occurring twice twice a year. Biennial should be occurring every other year, which is very interesting because the two are often confused and biennial does mean occurring every two years. So you have the Ryder Cup, for example, in golf, that is biennial, whereas biennial does mean twice a year. But what is happening is that biennial is quite often then used to mean the first one and the two are becoming pretty synonymous.
1: Well, we don't want them to. We want clarity with the language. So the Venice Biennale happens every other year. Yes. Is that correct? That's right. So think about that. The Biennale, the Biennale, biennial is every other year. Biannual is twice in the same year. That's what we want to establish. You say there is confusion now, but thanks to Something rhymes with purple. Thanks to Susie Dent and her little helper, Giles, we are going to make sure that people in future use the words correctly. Biannual means twice a year. bi means every other year. That's sorted. What has Jack Hughes had to say? Dear Giles and Susie, I hope you're both well. I'm continuing to enjoy my weekly dose of wordy fun with your fantastic podcast. One of my favourite ingredients to use when cooking are spring onions, otherwise known as scallions. I wondered, what is the origin of scallion? Does it have any links to the words scallywag and rapscallion? I thought it perhaps made sense that the latter two words are used to refer to impish youngsters, and spring onions are, by right of their name, onions that appear early on in the year. All the best for the week ahead,
0: Jack. He's given a lot of of thought to this. And I love it because I hadn't myself made all those connections. And I love the idea of a spring onion coming in the spring. I mean, I didn't even get that far. But actually, the scallion bit, I'll start with that, is the same. It's particularly a spring onion, but it can be any long necked onion with a small bulb. And actually, it is also, well, it's not an eponym, but a toponym this time, because it's based on the Latin... Ascalonia Sipa, which means Onion of Ascalon. And Ascalon was a port in ancient Palestine. Did you know that?
1: I think I did. Okay.
0: Well, I didn't know that. Not related then to the scallywag, because that's much more um, recent, mid-19th century. No one knows where scallywag comes from, unfortunately. It's such a... I mean, I think I would always associate scallywag with Liverpool... But more than that, we don't actually know. And then rapscallion was originally a rascallion, and we slightly changed the spelling. And I'm going to look that, if you can hear me tapping away in the OED. That has meant a rogue or a rascal since 1582. And it was probably a riff on lots of other things like ruffian. There was a rampallion as well, all meaning someone who was fairly um, roguish.
1: I love these really old words. Have you got three interesting words that may be really old to go along with Rapscadian to tease us with this week?
0: Yes. I I love this. I feel like I'm slightly running out, actually, because I've just realised that my first one is ultra crepidarian. So there you go. I'm going to give that one just because I love the story behind it. And just to remind you, ultra crepidarian is someone who loves to talk about things they actually don't know much about. That's the first one. The second one, uh, we're in the midst of summer now, aren't we, Giles? And I don't know if you're a summer person. I tend to be more of an autumn person. But If you find it just too hot or you go into a state of torpor during the um, incredibly hot and listless dog days of summer, then you can estivate, which is the summer equivalent of hibernating. And to estivate is to retire for the summer.
1: Well, it's a good word. You're just teasing me with so many um, other words. Maybe you should do a special summer issue because I want to talk about torpor. And I want to talk about dog days and why are they so called? Why aren't they cat days? Anyway, so Estivate, I'm with you on Estivate. And give me a third one. Yeah. And
0: the... F- third one now i think i have mentioned as one of my trio before a fit of the clevers now i have these quite often and a fit of the clevers is when you suddenly notice the time and realize just how much you have left to do um, and when you suddenly burst into a, a sort of scurry of activity that's um, a fit of the clevers and in french it's known rather more elegantly and it came into english as such as a charrette So a charrette is a sudden burst of activity in order to get things done. And it's about C-H-A-R-E-T-T-E. Charrette. Charrette. A charrette. Yes. In English, probably say we would say charrette, charrette.
1: Charrette. A charrette. (laughs) Well, uh, speaking of sudden bursts of activity, we shall be bursting into action later in the year. Well, quite soon now, because we're taking Something Rhymes With Purple back on stage. We are. At the end of September. And we're doing every show is (laughs) quite different. And we want to meet as many purple people as possibly can come along. So we're starting a a monthly residency at the Fortune Theatre in London, England, on September the 25th. Um, And there's a special homecoming gig for Susie in Oxford, at the Oxford Playhouse, on the 9th of October. So if you want tickets, info, go to somethingrhymeswithpurple.com. That's all one word, something rhymes with purple, then dot com or follow us on social media at Something Rhymes on Twitter and Facebook or at Something Rhymes With on Instagram to find out more, which is exciting, isn't it? It is exciting. At one of our uh, live shows, I realised, we got to the part of the show when I do a poem, that I didn't have a poem with me. So I had to do one from my head. And the one I did is the one I'm going to do again right now, because it's it's a poem called Galoshes. And I've got the words in front of me now, so we get it right. Because it's the only poem I can think of that is entirely devoted to shoes. You know what galoshes are, don't you?
0: Yes, I do. I've never had a pair. But well, they're, they're kind, kind of
1: overshoes. And they were very popular once upon a time. And this poem is called Galoshes. It's by Paul Jennings, who I was lucky enough to know. I am having a rapprochement with galoshes. And some would say this heralds middle age. Yes, sneering they would say, does he also wear pince nez? Old has wore galoshes when women's hats were cloches. Ha! Woollen combinations are this dodderer's next stage. Well, let the people snigger just because my feet look bigger. For colossal in galoshes, they are dry among the sploshes. A story that won't wash is this story that galoshes, "'So snug at slushy crossings make a man a sloppy figure. "'Oh, crossly and still crosslier. "'I've bought shoes even costlier, "'which, still quite new, let water through before I've crossed the street. "'There's nothing manly, I repeat, in always having cold, wet feet.' Galoshinessness is foolishness when sharply slants the sleet, and I utterly refuse the expression overshoes to make galoshes posher. I would scorn this feeble ruse. The word galosh is not strong, not weak. It comes from calopus, the Greek, for cobbler's last, and thus is classed with hero times antique. Come, muse, through slush and sleet, dry footed with me, tripso that I may praise galoshes in a calopus calypso. Oh, when swishing buses splash and the rush hour masses clash, when it's marshy as molashes, how galoshes cut a dash. It makes me quite impassioned when they're dubbed unsmart old-fashioned for such, by gosh, the boches that's talked about galoshes, some since the very finest leather is outsmarted altogether by the classy, glossy polish of galoshes in such weather. That's not the whole poem. I don't think I can give you the whole poem. If you want the rest of the poem, I'm going to try to learn it to perform at the Fortune Theatre. But it's a bit of a, a,
0: a, a tongue twister, twister, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And um, very entertaining with it. <laughs> well, I hope you love that as much as me. And if you love the show, please continue to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, wherever get you, you get your podcasts. And do please recommend us to friends and family. Um, and we're on social media now as well, aren't we, Giles? Not just us, but the, the pod tours you mentioned
1: because I do Twitter. I found us at Something Rhymes on Twitter. So I'm doing my best to, to spread the word through there. Anyway, Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else uh, and Sony Music Entertainment production. Uh, it was produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells with additional production from Chris Skinner, Jen Mystery, Jay Beal, and our very own Rapscallion. Golly. Yeah, like to see him in Crocs.